Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to a netcast from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center and professor of epidemiology and public health as well as psychology. We're delighted today to be joined by two people, a special guest, Dr. Joan Dai Gusso, um, who I will introduce in a moment, and my colleague at Yale, Melina Shannon DiPietro, who is uh, one of the directors of the Yale Sustainable Food Program, a noteworthy program doing very progressive things on the Yale campus and beyond. Um, I'd like to introduce Joan Gusso, who is the Mary Schwartz Rose Professor Emerita at um, Columbia University Teachers College and former chair of the Nutrition Education Program, where she has taught and still teaches um, on nutrition and food policy-related issues. Uh, Joan's held a number of positions of importance. Um, She's currently serving on the boards of a number of organizations related to food and food policy. She's served on the Food and Nutrition Board of the National Academy of Sciences, a group that helps establish national nutrition policy, written a number of books and articles, including a wonderful book called This Organic Life, where she talks about her own experience with food, growing organic food, uh, its sort of philosophical role in her life in the world, and food policy. Uh, Joan is noteworthy for her scholarship, for her passion about food-related issues, and has been one of the the first people um, around to talk about organic issues and food as food rather than food as nutrients, and we'll get into that topic. But many years before most people were thinking about these issues, Joan was there. So clearly a pioneer, clearly a person of great influence. Joan, we're delighted to have you here. Thanks, Thank you, for, thanks for joining us. And Melina, it's nice to have you joining us as well. Thank you, Kelly. So let me start off with the, the following uh, question for you, Joan. You've raised the issue of what constitutes food. And at first glance, it seems like a pretty food is food. And of course, this is a food and that is a food. But it's actually more complicated than one might think. Tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, I was actually asked to try to legally define it once because there was a a suit in Ohio about whether you could tax certain things, and we were trying to prove that certain things were not food. It turns out to be really tough to do because the dictionary definition sometimes says anything, anything that produces energy and nutrients for growth, and then actually it got dropped. Those nutrients got dropped, and the definition got changed at a later time, which is interesting because there are many things that produce energy that we can get in the food supply now that don't do much else. But that doesn't exactly do it for me because I think that we have so many what I call simulacra of foods, you know, things that look like food or we've learned to think of as food that aren't food. They come in boxes and packages, and they're called health bars, or they're called breakfast cereals, or they're called whatever. And they're, you know, they're not, they're not cereals. I mean, some of those children's cereals are 50% sugar. They're not cereal grains. So deciding what you're going to call a food or not a food. I mean, I I tried when I was doing this work for these lawyers. We tried to think of about at what point did a potato being processed, let's say. Let's say you, you get a package of fro- French fries, frozen French fries, or then is it still a, it's still a food, presumably. You could still say, well, it's a potato made into French fries. Or a packaged baked potato with cheese in it. Maybe we could call that a food. But when you get, when you get, to, when you get to the instant mashed potatoes, when it's reduced to that, or, you know, in food processing, they'll use potato starch, just as starch. At what point does it cease being food? Are there... Are there processes that you can say at this point 
it's no longer food? I, it's a very tough question, and, and you and I were talking about this earlier. And I, I mean, I think it's a fascinating question. I like to say we can't, we'd have to redefine a whole bunch of stuff and then say we can't really call it food unless it meets these certain criteria. But really? it's, it's astonishing where we've come to. I mean, when, when you think about the fact that there were 800 things in the supermarket or in the market when I was a child, when I was born, and there are now 40,000. And it's like most of them are not anything that anyone in my generation would have called food. It reminds me when I um, do talks these days, I'll very often start off with a food label of ingredients from a common food, and I'll have the audience guess what it is. It happens to be a chocolate <laughs> Pop-Tart. But the audience will guess a hundred different things, and the fact is they could all be right. It could be any number of foods, but the most noteworthy thing about that food label is that it has 56 entries, 56 things listed on the food label. And you think back to the time when, at one point, if there had been such a thing as, as food labels, it would have had one ingredient. It would have been the food. It would have been an orange or a carrot or whatever. And now we have 56. So we, there's a completely different relationship we have with food. I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's interesting. The very first talk I ever gave, which I think was in 1969, to a what was called the People's Office in Rockland County when the, in, in the days of the of the hippies, there were sort of people's offices where the business really got done and you did radical things. And I was asked to speak to these people, and I wanted to talk about the whole question of what was good food. And I went to the market and tried to buy something with very few ingredients. And I actually got B and M baked beans, and uh, and brown bread, which had no nothing in them you wouldn't have recognized. And then I got. Jello one two three, and I've since told I don't know if you even remember this incredible product that you made it and it w divided into three non-nutritious layers. The top layer was sort of a foam, and then there was a sort of puddingy middle layer, and then the and then at the bottom there was Jello, which God knows what that is. But anyway, um, and I was checking out of the supermarket. And I was so embarrassed to be buying that product that the woman in front of me turned and said, oh, do you have to have special glasses to make that? <laughs> to put the, and I, I was so embarrassed that I said, oh, I'm just buying this as a bad example. Well, I mean, I think I lost the entire supermarket, you know, but the reality is that, that, that most, you can't buy things like B&M baked beans very well in the store. I mean, I, talk, I think about the juice aisle the so-called juice aisle in a supermarket, most of which is not juice. It's Concoctions of chemicals and things. Poor small portions of juice with a lot of added high fructose corn syrup and water. Lena? Joan, I wonder, we were talking earlier about how intractable the farm bill is, and mm -hmm. I wonder how you think it's related to this conversation about what ingredients are in our supermarkets. And then if you had a magic wand, how you might change the farm bill as it stands, or the food and farm bill, as some people think it's better called. Well, that's a great question, because, of course, the whole thing about the farm bill is that what it's supporting is this endless soy and endless corn, all of which are going to make up this stream of raw materials that goes into these products. I had a student who tried to, who tried to live for a month without any high fructose corn syrup and couldn't, could hardly find anything to eat. I mean, she actually could find, you know, raw vegetables and fruits, but, I mean, no product that you could buy had didn't have it. So that that's what's pushing it. It's really pushed it. And if I could do the farm bill over, I mean, there's no question. I would, I think there's a proposal now in front of Congress to have crop insurance so that anyone who really needs it won't go broke because we do have 
to protect farmers against farming is one of the few activities in which we engage as a, as a profession that is dependent on the weather. And farmers have to be protected from absolutely random weather. I mean, half the farmers in the Midwest, the organic farmers, were just put underwater, you know, and it's hard to function under those circumstances. So we need to insure farmers, but we need to get rid of these huge automatic payments that are made to people who grow endless corn and endless soy, because then we just have to find a place for it. And so we stuff it into cattle, and we make it into high fructose corn syrup, and we put it into all these products. We don't need all that stuff. We need those monies transferred to supporting farmers who are growing the things we want to have them grow, which is more fruits and more supports for fruits and vegetable farmers and, and more supports for farmers in terms of the weather. And the weather is going to become a, an increasing issue with global warming. Joan, you made a very interesting point about distinguishing food and nutrients. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, one of the things that, that has destroyed us, I think, as a culture is that we do, we have come to believe food is nutrients, that foods are collections of nutrients, and that that's why we eat them. Um, and number one, that isn't all they are, because they're collections, they're huge collections of chemicals, biochemicals, and most of which we don't know much about at all. So we just have this little teeny bit of knowledge that we call, nu the, uh, and, and you know, when I was first in school in nutrition, I was told we had, uh, we had discovered all the nutrients. And, and except maybe one trace mineral, I think boron, they weren't sure of yet, but that might turn out to be important. But it was like we had done it. And all of a sudden, all these phytochemicals come along like beta carotene and anthocyanins and all these things that are now, they're now putting in food. So like this little piece that we know about, we, we act as if that's all that's important in food. And the other thing that was being said when I first came into nutrition was that fiber, you should take fiber out of the, uh, many of the diets because it was roughage and it wasn't good for you. So we, we, we struggle around modifying our little bit of knowledge a little bit, and we call, and we def since we define food as nutrients, that's all we're looking for. And the result is that, that foods as foods are not, I think, it's interesting to think about it. I'd never thought about it this way. It really is almost as if that's what allowed this food I mean, that's in a sense what I said when I was talking earlier, but I wasn't sort of putting it together. It's the fact that we define them as nutrients that allow these food products to be made, because if they're not defined as nutrients, then what are they? They're, they're not food. You know what it, it uh, connects with is whether the food industry has driven this or whether they're just responding to it. The food industry is doing all sorts of things to fortify food in one way or another, and then, of course, they boast about it on the label, so they could make a you know, a very high sugar cereal, let's say, and they'll put on the box that it's fortified with vitamins and minerals. And Contains you, all the essential vitamins and minerals, they Those say. are the typical claims. And now you hear about omega-3 is getting pushed into foods and things like that. Uh, do you think that takes people further away from what food really is and creates even more distant relationship with Oh, food? absolutely. I mean, and partly because, Kelly, there's no way... There are now 37 nutrients on which we have RDAs or whatever they're now calling them, you know, the <laughs> recommended amounts. They have different names for them. And you don't want to go into the supermarket and figure out what proportion of those 37 different nutrients you're getting, and you can't even account for the other things. So I think people have been 
made to feel incompetent. They're, they're, not, they're not competent to just go to the store and buy food and feed themselves. They have to read all these labels, they have to look for a new diet that does some magic thing for them, but they're not, they're, their ability to just deal with ordinary food, and I, you know, I can, I always get mad when people tell me it takes too long, you know, it's just to do, to cook, or whatever you do, like, you know, we, it, it doesn't. I mean, that's not true. It doesn't take as long as it takes to make your way through a supermarket. You know, the food industry now is coming up with their own labeling systems where they'll put symbols of one sort or another mm. on different parts mm -hmm. of their product mm -hmm. line mm -hmm. to designate what's healthier and unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. for example, the PepsiCo company has their smart spot symbols that they put. Um, and other companies have the same version of that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. What's, mm -hmm. What you made me just think about, it, it's remarkable that they even have to do that, that, that we're so distant from the food and we don't know what's in it because mm -hmm. there are all these concoctions mm -hmm. of different mm -hmm. things that we need to be coached or guided on what to buy and, and what to And eat. you have to believe them. Well, I the, mean, the funny, I mean, it's, it's the fox guarding the hen house right, when the food right. industry creates its own system of labels to designate what's good or bad, and then they put those on their own food. You end up with these perverse things going on. But, but it's interesting that it has to happen at all. I heard you express this idea years ago that you trust, you trust the cows more than you trust the <laughs> chemists. And this was talking about butter versus margin. Right, but right. I feel like that's the, sort of the same type of slogan that we should have for this this type of work. I, I think you could you, you could apply that to the entire food supply. I mean that you, that you trust that you trust nature more than you trust the chemists. You know the, the, because nature has fed human beings for eons. You know that's what we lived on. Chemists have only been at it for maybe fifty years, <laughs> and we're not doing too good. I mean you know that. I mean we're not doing too well as far as our health is concerned. Somebody said to me the other night that we were living longer than, than we kept living longer. And I said, no, that's not true. We just don't lose as many infants. Mm -hmm. The life, life expectancy of the 21-year-old 20, male, the last time I looked, had hardly gone up at all. So we're not doing so well. One, one issue I'd like to see you address is the issue that there are no good foods and bad foods. Mm. Um, this is a position that's pushed very hard by the, uh, the nutrition establishment, the, the American Dietetic Association, and then gets exploited by the food industry, yep. of course, yep. because, you know, take Coca-Cola, for example. You know, how can we say that people should drink less Coca-Cola because there are no good foods and bad foods here, therefore we can't be a bad food? Um, and so how do you think that affects the way people think about food? And what do you think about that philosophy in general? Oh, I think it's uh, hideous. <laughs> I think it's absolutely corrupt. I mean, I, I, I can't, it's, it's like, the first time I heard that, I heard it in a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences by one of the people who was on, the, on a panel with me. She said, oh, we don't talk about good foods and bad foods anymore. And I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, well, that's just negative. You don't want to be negative. It doesn't do any good to be negative with people. And... I waited till the break and I said, are you trying to tell me that you're gonna tell your daughter screaming yellow zonkers are a good food? <laughs> and she looked sort of stunned, like what was I saying? You know, there's, 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 there's verbal shenanigans in that. I mean, that's what that's about. That's about making it impossible to say there's any food. I don't care if you call it, a, you don't have to call it a bad food. I'm not a moralist. You know, all you have to say is you shouldn't really eat this food. <laughs> good or bad, you shouldn't eat it. It's not, a, it's not good for you. 
Well, from a population point of view, you could it's easy to say that the population should be eating fewer hot dogs and more fruits and vegetables, for example. Right, right. And that's right. not a hard call to make. Most everybody would agree on that criteria, but the no good food and bad food philosophy really is a barrier to thinking like that. And then and then it breaks it breaks down completely when you go to the supermarket. It doesn't help to know the generalities. If not one if every one of those foods is a good food, then why don't I just live on Pop Tarts? You know, or Coca Cola. Why don't we just fortify Coca-Cola with all the essential vitamins and minerals, and then I can live on Coca-Cola and Pop-Tarts? I mean, you see more and more of that kind of stuff happening. And you do. You know, you, you mentioned in a talk you gave at the Rudd Center earlier today that, that you know, people have talked about certain foods being nutrient delivery systems, and it, it's almost become that. So, you know, Captain Crunch or Lucky Charms in the eyes of a consumer can be a, a vitamin delivery system. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, chemists, I, I said, I think what I talked about was chemists calling, food chemists calling vegetables a phytochemical delivery system. I mean, but that's the way the food chemist, I mean, when I took food chemistry, I was astonished. The milk system, the cream system, it's like, that's how they think about it. It's all, it, it's all already devitalized. It's all already just a system. And then they play with it. It strikes me that we've talked about this idea over lunches at the Red Center, and I think it's at the core of your book that something that's missing from the food industry is the idea of pleasure um, and of culture, that what food is a force that brings us together, and it nourishes us not just in sort of bodily ways, but also in, in spiritual ways or in community-oriented ways. Yeah, and I think that one of the great... It's so hard to say what's cause and what's effect. One of the great enablers of our fragmentation as a society is the fact that we can eat any place, any time with nobody that we see preparing food for us. I mean, it has enabled us not to have family meals so that we don't have family meals and now we have no reason to come together. And it's so, it's so hard. I, it, it's so hard to know what came first. I was once on Good Morning America, never again, because I didn't fill their criteria, but um, they wanted me to tell them what it meant that we were not eating meals together. And I said, essentially, who the hell knows? I said, we didn't do a baseline study. When we were all eating meals together, we didn't take a baseline, you know? Should I tell you that I think the family's coming apart, society's coming apart, we're at war all the time, we're, we have all this violence, should I tell you that that's the consequence of that? I said, we don't know. And we don't. We don't have any idea. I don't think it's un unrelated. I don't think that, I mean, we now have a few studies showing the kids do better in school when their families eat together and some things that really are beginning to show that, in fact, it is an important time. And, and, and we were taught so methodically by television commercials that we could all eat separately if we wanted to, that we didn't have time to have meals together. We're all doing whatever we're doing at all these times. And um, I think it's um, very sobering. You know, the theme we were talking about earlier about how distant people have, have become mm. from their food, mm. uh, you were talking about how you can go to a supermarket and actually not see the food very often. I thought that was an interesting comment. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, well, I was commenting on how odd it was that with, with all the food toxins and stuff that we had, spinach and scallions and tomatoes, and 
It took dog food to alarm us. <laughs> then we got all upset. And I said it was because I think that we had always kind of, you could see that the spinach might get splattered with manure, right? But the idea you have this nice sterile package, triple wrapped, must be clean. And the idea somehow that that might not be the case, that inside that thing which you couldn't see were ingredients that had all come from China, from unknown kinds of situations, that that was, that kept us, we're, we're really helpless. I mean, we're really dependent on somebody labeling that box to tell us whether it's safe to eat. And we can't make a judgment personally. We can't take that, we can take the spinach home and wash it, you know, even if we want to wash it in one of those soaps and destroy it. The, the thing that killed me when that spinach, when we had that spinach scare was that one of the suggestions was that we should irradiate spinach. And I, I mean, I said, I said to somebody, that is like the end of technological optimism. Can't you imagine what irradiated spinach would look like? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, and you mentioned in this context, too, that when you go to a supermarket, so much of the food is hidden behind a box or it's in a bag and things like that. And you think about these thousands and thousands of items at a food store and how many of them do you actually see? Right, right, it's very right. Interesting. You have to read a label. Give us some hope. What should we be doing? Oh, eat food. <laughs> That's the secret. Eat food. Real food that you can see as close from as close to the farm as you can get it. And that isn't as hard as people think it is. It's getting easier. You know, this is actually a, a good note to end on because, Joan, if you think about how you were a voice in the wild in the early days here and now, so many people are thinking about these issues and they're being woven in some ways into college curricula and right. into school curricula right. and people are much more concerned about the story of their food. They want to know where it comes from. And you deserve, deserve a lot of the credit for helping push that uh, for the nation. Um, and it must feel gratifying to you to see so many more people thinking this way. Now, there's still a long way to go, of course. It's very gratifying, Kelly, because when I first talked about it, I t first talked about it, I think, publicly. I'd thought about it before, but I didn't talk about it publicly. It was in 1980 at Berkeley and I was visiting a lecturer, and I said something about localizing the food supply, and this professor got up with his withering sarcasm and said, where do you think the people in Iowa are gonna get their vitamin C in the winter? And I wish I'd had the wit to say to him that my parents grew up there and neither of them had scurvy, but I, did, I didn't, because I knew that everyone thought it was a crazy idea, and that's not true anymore, you know? That's, it's very heartening to see the changes. Yeah, let's hope they can continue is. at such a rapid pace. Uh, Melina, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and Joan, thank you so much for coming to Yale and joining us at the Rudd Center. Um, as I mentioned, this is a netcast from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Um, if you'd like to uh, visit our website, it's www.yaleruddcenter.org. Um, the Rudd Center is filled with information on the issues like we discussed today. Uh, we have a free email newsletter that one can subscribe to on food and food policy issues, a blog if you'd like to take part in that, etc. So please join us for our next netcast.